This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. All right, listeners, this is your last chance. After listening to today's podcast, there's no turning back. If you switch off now, the podcast ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. If you keep listening, you'll hear the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. In this episode, we're looking at two of the most iconic films of all time. Both films reset their genre moulds. Both films created canonical lines that help society express feelings, emotions, and thoughts of disassociation. Both films cause decades of philosophical discussion and follow a protagonist who ventures into a world that is similar yet different to their own. Yes, we're sorry we did Blue Steel last week. (laughs) So, to make up for it, we're doing 1939's The Wizard of Oz versus 1999's The Matrix. I'm Mr. Anderson himself, Craig Anderson. I can't tell you, when that movie came out, the amount of people that thought it was hilarious to come up to me and go, Mr. Anderson, okay, whatever. And as always, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile, science nerd, and book boss of UCID, a man who clearly has a brain but still manages to do a lot of talking, it's Herschel Isaacs. I kind of like that we're peaking with this one because it's two movies that, I, I don't know, we're going to talk a lot about it, but I reckon they changed the world. So you can't that, go much bigger than that's that. That's what I like to hear. We're also joined by the tank to his dozer, the glinda to his alfalba, <laughs> a spineless sheep in a lion's coat. It's the associate professor of film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. Hi, guys. Uh, love the Matrix uh, that we're doing today, so that's exciting. Oh, boy. You did a PhD on it. I did do my PhD on The Matrix. I have a lot to say. But very excitingly, you're not doing You're doing Wizard no, no, of I'm Oz. No, I'm Wizard of Oz. Which I'm very I've happy. just spent too much of my life talking about The Matrix, so I'm glad to be on Wizard. Now, we grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney on the unceded lands of the Darug people. The three of us attended public schools together and bonded over movies. Today, I'd like to shout out to a movie that was extremely popular when we first met. I'm talking about the 1984 Joe Dante smash hit... Gremlins. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Gremlins has a special place in my heart because, uh, one, it was a huge movie for us. We saw it in uh, Cape Town, South Africa a cu- as well. A c- coloured cinema. So. Well, I, see, I can't... Yeah, it must have to be a coloured cinema. If you were coloured, you couldn't go any place that whites went. So it had to be a coloured cinema. It's one of the, like, five or six things in my mind that I can remember as a child, going to the movies and it being a big event going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember loving it because the scenes that still stay with me are the pre-Gremlin scenes. So I love things like ah. going to Chinatown and the guy going, there are three <laughs> rules. 
No light, no water. Do not feed him after midnight. That sort of thing. I remember it's like the pre pre gremlins. I remember the scratching of the the window, like yeah. in the snow and the yes. ice trying to get. I don't know why yes. I remember that so vividly. And then him having to walk because his car doesn't work to the bank. Also, do you remember the dad? He was the inventor. Oh and yeah, he had yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. We had a toothbrush and a shaving cream, and he <laughs> was always inventing things. Oh, but the, yeah. the one thing that the, okay, so I saw it at Penrith Hayden Cinema again, yeah. like I saw Crocodile Dundee and Footrow Flats, and I think it was just before I met you two. Yeah. And and Gremlins was something again we talked about in the, the schoolyard, but I remember it was overwhelmingly sad, <laughs> sad and scary, and not fun. My experience of watching. Well, it. the movie was. Uh, it got a massive level of controversy because parents were furious with it mm. because it was touted as it was the pictures big, of kids movie. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it's part of a whole wave now that we understand really changed cinema forever. So you know, people like Spielberg uh, had a hand in all of this, right? Because, yeah. Uh, the production. You know, Spielberg wasn't just a director juggernaut. He had a hand in virtually every big studio thing. You know, coming through Universal or Amblin. So. It was a kind of movie coming out, and I think it really defined a lot of what was going on. But everybody thought it was in the vein of like your ETs kind of thing. Yes, like it's an interesting character movie. Kids are gonna love it. And then when the Gremlins appear, yeah, they are like I still remember being so shocked by the schoolroom scene. Do you remember the gremlin that the scientist is yeah. doing when, when he, he, he on? takes the and he's trying to give him yeah, chocolate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like and it's, it's that, and and he bites his arm. Mm. He grabs and he gets. And I was like horrified by well, that. Well, it's it's a time where genre like what would be considered, I guess, a friendly and safe and fun genre yeah. that was meant to be fantasy or adventure. Yep. And it's a Christmas movie. Yes, That's but the, the filmmakers started to use the dedication and they went, well, no, this is a scary moment, yep. so it's going to be scary. Because at the same time, that was when Temple of Doom, because I think, wasn't this and Temple well, of Doom the, the two other films? One, Spielberg yes. wasn't happy with the performance of Temple of Doom because he got the same kind of crap from people. Well, it's but that's when they had to make the new rating for, yeah. for those because it was like, well, uh, okay. in America, they had to introduce the... PG thirteen to yep. to suggest yep. that this is going to have some violence. There's that something you don't in it that you've got to be careful. Yeah, of. this isn't just a friendly yep. kids movie. Gremlins also aimed at I mean, it was it was touted as a kids movie, but then it had these other aspects that brought in older people as well. So remember the old lady in the bank. Mm. So when she goes yeah. and she talks to Billy, she goes she wants to kill Billy's dog because mm. he's causing so much trouble mm. and everything. Right. Well, speaking of dog murdering, like in <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Well, and also that character is obviously like a, a so that's a it's a wonderful on, life. Yeah, it's a wonderful life. But also um, the oh, her name in Wizard of Oz, the woman. Yes, who owns that's what the I'm farm. talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can I just say the in screenwriting the the famous book by Blake Snyder, Save the Cat is um, uh, something that screenwriters are given to, to study, and it's, it's, it's referencing Alien, where Ripley literally saves the cat on board the ship yep. to make you endear that this hero is okay. And it's sort of something that an action hero might do that makes you go, oh, I'm with this person. Yep. Even though they're a hard-boiled detective, yeah, yeah. they've done something I mean, like nice. Like it softens her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's in that world of well, this isn't saving the cat, and so a villain will do something quite the opposite. For instance, the Wizard of Oz, I'm going to go after your little dog, or in this case, I hate, I'm going to get your dog put down, Billy. <laughs> Can <laughs> you believe the dog's going to get put down? How horrible is yeah. that? With the way she's in the bank, they've got a cute little sort of almost 
like Marty McFly Back to the Future sequence where the dog runs riot. Yeah. He escapes and he's like all over the thing. His paper's flying everywhere. So. There's a, like, well, one of the things that came out of that, that wave of movies was, especially the Christmas movie, there was mm. a, a degree of whimsy in it. So just the way... You know the snow, the snow town mm. with the lights everywhere, yeah. and the guy sitting on his porch and he's got the lights around, and there's this lumen, you know, luminescence to the whole place. You know, we we talked a lot about this in Back to the Future, the the idea of those '80s looking back at the '50s or yeah. '60s, but Joe Dante fully is responsible for so much of that. Oh, so massively. much of his work is. What do you call it? Revisionist or something where you look back at yeah, but or I, nostalgic? Nostalgic. Yeah. I think like the place where you've got a small town, mm. right? And everybody knows each other. So you walk down the street, you go like, hi, Mr. Smith. Or you walk past a hardware store, you wave to the person. You know, Back to the Future with Marty's on his skateboard. Yeah. And for some random reason, the women are doing a, a thing in the gym and he starts waving <laughs> to them. Like, you know, he's this guy around town. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing. The structure of the small town setting. That's why I mm. always think... When people and look Stephen like, King as a touchstone yeah, for us. But they also use the structure very much like, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, about the contained structure, Agatha Christie setting in the snow. This is also set in the snow. And you remember they yeah. they, they cordoned in. Yeah. And then remember the cops, that that sort of mm. motif of the cops on the, on the, on the walkie-talkies going... There's been an incident. We had a report it's, from somebody. It's, and it's, it's almost like the thing times 100. Yeah, you know? it, it is. <laughs> I like, I like that reference. It's the yeah. thing where people on walkie-talkies going, we don't know what's happening, but something's closing in. It's a, there's a menace. Yeah. Bringing it back to the small town thing, it plugs into the Joseph Campbell thing, that this is your community. You live in this small yeah. area. You dream of something else, yeah. and now something's and coming. And you're under attack. You're under attack. And there's a small group of heroes yeah. who have to attain something, like, for example, the romance, right? Mm. So the, the young man has to attain like uh, maturation in terms of romance, but then also defeating the evil that's come to town, which is, uh, especially with the gremlins, <laughs> I have all these great memories, like seeing it as a kid, and remember the gremlins sitting on the traffic lights mm. and changing everything, <laughs> cars just running into each other? I love that. I thought that was so funny. They're fantastic tricksters, like yeah. jokers, like yeah. it's not just about death, it's about having fun. Well, what about <laughs> when they're in the toy <laughs> store and, he's, and, and Gizmo's driving mm. the car? That's the best. Well, what about when Gizmo's Rambo, and he's got like his, mm. um, yeah, remember he's got the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what's it called? He like ties a, a headband. Well, well, there's no coincidence that they that they they put the ending in a sport sporting yeah. goods store yeah. because the potential to go nuts <laughs> in a sporting goods store. Remember, he's driving around in Barbie Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Dante got the structure of this whole thing right, like the script. So, for example, the 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 rules allow you to up the ante in the suspense, right? Mm. So the first thing that happens is remember uh, they shine a light on Gizmo and he goes, oh, right. <laughs> And then <laughs> that actually sounded exactly like this <laughs> But then the second thing is they drop water on him yeah. and yeah. he starts popping but things out. But do you remember out. who drops water on him? Is that, is that the sign? It's Corey Feldman. It's Corey Feldman. Oh. The amount of trouble that guy caused. Yeah, that was before he put his, in the 80s. That's yeah, before he put his tooth on eBay to raise money. <laughs> but that's but, another story. But that was also that was a moment of body horror when poor little cute oh, guy Even now when you watch that body kind yeah. of palpitating and then the stuff popping yeah. out. Mm. I find that a really f weird thing to look at. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, even weirder than the um, the emergence from the cocoon, because at least we've seen that before. That's just invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So but it's also alien. It was very big, that, that scene where um, John Hurt comes up and the thing opens up. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I want to shout out the music. The score is amazing yeah. and yeah. iconic. And Who did the score? Is that Alan Silvestri? I, I no, thought it was I don't Gold, Jerry Goldsmith. Oh. And fingers crossed, there's no reboot.
because it is its own thing, right? And then New Batch, it was I only a few New years Batch later. Disappointing. Get out of my life. I love, like New, I love New Batch. I love that I it took Gremlins and put it into Die Hard. It put it into a tall building <laughs> and it threw in Christopher Lee. Also, if like you want to make a movie... Studio. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, that. And then it also in New Batch, there's Leonard Moulton. Yeah. Because he gave the first one such a bad review, he didn't like it. So they approached him and said, can you play a, yourself? Oh, that's what I remember. Yeah, and not Moulton. only that, but before he gets attacked, he is reviewing Gremlins and saying it sucks. So <laughs> it's <laughs> awesome because he still gets to do what he wants to say. The uh, point of contact with Gremlins to the New Batch is the Key and Peel skit. Oh. Where they creating like the boardroom where if you haven't seen, I'll like, play. Guys, give me some ideas. I'm gonna play a clip. So you mean like, what if there was like a brainy gremlin? <laughs> a brainy gremlin. You talking about a gremlin with glasses who could talk and sing New York, New York? That's brilliant. It's in the movie done. And then the title card comes up, goes. Every one of those gremlins was in this. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> what about one that's just made of electricity? <laughs> <laughs> could there be a female gremlin? Lipstick boobies, bitch, you have me and little gremlin but JJ. I love it so much that it's not only in the movie, but it's definitely in the movie. There's no backseas on that one. All right, so shout out to Gremlins 2. Shout out to Gremlins 1, the original. If you haven't seen it, it's such a a fun movie. I'd say put it on a Christmas, right? Oh, oh, it's, oh it's, every, every Christmas I'd watch that. Yeah, movie. it's Absolutely. like, you know, 10 finished Christmas. All right, I think that's it for Gremlins. As always, today's episode will feature spoilers for both films. And even though one of the films is more than 85 years old and screamed more than 100 times on television in every country on Earth, but if you haven't seen it, now's your chance to swallow the blue pill. If other films pop up along the way, we will do our best not to spoil them. All right, let's do let's this. Take one. Our first film is 1939's The Wizard of Oz. This is the eldest film we've done so far. Is, is this the oh, yes. eldest? Well, uh, we've not done any uh, expressionist horror or anything. We've pitched a lot, but yeah, we've never okay. actually done one yet. But this is The Wizard of Oz, 1939. In 1937, filmmaker Walt Disney proved to the world that audiences were happy to watch fairy tales when he smashed it out of the park with his Oscar-winning animated feature... No way. So way. And the Seven Dwarfs. Studios immediately began buying up children's stories, including MGM, who bought the rights for Frank L. Baum's Balm, is that how yeah. I say Baum? Yeah. Yep. Classic The Wizard of Oz. After 18 months of rewrites, MGM moved into production with several different d- directors in succession, with the bulk of the work being done by Victor Fleming, who also that year directed Gone with the Wind. There we go. I mean, because there was such trouble mm. uh, with, with Gone with the Wind yeah. that he was bouncing back and forth. Well, I was trying to it's make... It's one of the most interesting moments in the history of Hollywood. All right, maybe we'll cover that because yeah, I was yeah. trying to write the synopsis neatly and I was like, yeah. hey, there's no way no, to no, write no, this I'm neatly fascinated what happened by here. 1939 yeah. is, a, is like in the words well, of yeah. it is a red-letter date I'll, in the I'll history come. of Hollywood. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is the story of young teenager Dorothy who lives in rural Kansas with her beloved dog Toto. One day on the way back to her farmstead, Toto gets into an altercation with a mean neighbour, Miss Gulch, who subsequently receives an order to have the dog destroyed. Heartbroken, Dorothy and Toto run away where they meet a carnival shyster who sways her to return home. Before she can reunite with her aunt, uncle and friendly farmhands, a tornado strikes the homestead and transports Dorothy to a mystical place called Oz, where she accidentally kills a witch and inherits the dead woman's shoes. She sets out along the yellow brick road where she is joined by a talking scarecrow, talking lion, 
and whatever the hell Tin Man is. <laughs> so I was like, are they meant to talk or not talk? I don't know if this is a unique Tin Man. Okay. She meets the leader of the land, the wizard, and is tasked with killing another witch, which she does by pouring water on her. Dorothy then discovers that the wizard is in fact the carnival fraud from earlier who has no real power to return her home. Fortunately, Dorothy trusts the instructions of the only witch left in town who she hasn't killed <laughs> and famously clicks her heels together three times and repeats, there's no place like home. Upon waking up exactly where she was before the tornado, Dorothy realises that many of the faces from the magical land are those of the people close to her and possibly she has dreamt the entire adventure. The film turned its $3 million budget into close to $28 million in 1939 money. It won Oscars for Best Song, for Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and a special award for Judy Garland's performance. The film lost most of the other Oscars that year too. Goldwyn. Which, despite being a very white film, provided the first Oscar to a black performer. Anyone got the name? Uh, Denzel Washington. Thank you so much for turning <laughs> up. No, no, what is up. it? The, um, Hattie, she plays Hattie, uh, Mammy. Yes, Hattie McDaniel. And then, oh, that's right, yeah. Here's a little trivia. How long before the next Oscar to a black performer? Uh, Sydney Portier. That's correct. Sydney oh, Portier. Okay. 35 years. But then to the next female black woman was Halle Berry. Wow. Which is what? Monsters Ball 2000? Yeah, which is what? 80 years maybe. Wow. And Sidney Poitier winning that for Lilies of the Field. Mm. But he beat out Richard Harris in This Sporting Life, which is a movie I'd like to shout out to. Okay. It's a great movie. Um, British one. All right. The Wizard of Oz is now regarded as one of the most beloved, quotable, and popular films of all time. Bruce, what's your take on this awe-inspiring movie? So let's start with that red-letter date of 1939, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a number of things are happening globally. As Herschel said... We've got the emergence of World War II, but really critically, um, and I want to come back, this is going to be the subtext of my whole reading, America only goes into the war after Pearl Harbor in late 1941, mm -hmm. but there are a number of like pleas from Europe and the major allied powers for America to get in. Because remember, the 20th century is famously the American century. <laughs> America is the hotbed of just capitalist production and resourcing. So America has far more resources than any of the other powers, but they don't enter the war because they're effective. I mean, Herschel, you'll be able to talk about this more extensively, but they're coming out of a space of um, isolationism. So for me, I don't think it's... Uh, you know, an overly subtle or, or mysterious reading to say, this is a film that is creating a fantasy of uh, a young person growing up. So in, in some sense, it's a coming of age. It's a learning about the world. But the essential learning is I have to take a journey to mature. I have to encounter a bunch of obstacles like Dorothy will encounter. I need to meet a lot of people. And in what I do, I'm going to affect these people's lives. I'm going to improve their lives. I'm going to show that they have something to offer the world. And that ultimately what I do is I return home because my job is to nourish my community, my world. And that was such an American value, especially like I love the sepia openings to mm. um, the, the and maybe that maybe I love that even more than the land of Oz because it's such a fantasy, right? This Dust Bowl America, depression era America, these people living on the farm and they're doing it hard, right? You know, you know, the, we know that they're struggling. Especially it's the grapes of wrath. But the other thing I want to add though to what you were saying about 
a person venturing outward and realizing that what's home is the best thing is, I think it's important to highlight that, yes, she heads out and she says that there's no place like home. But in going out, she solves the problems of everyone else, yep. fixes the rest of the world, and then comes home and says, Which there's is, no place like what home. Are we saying? So that's what America mm. hopes to do well, with well, World War II? That's the myth of exceptionalism. And you've got to be like us. We have and the, the capacity to restore order, um, family, connection, community. That's all the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, um, we have the capacity to restore your courage in yourself, in your community. I, I, yeah. yeah, I guess what's sad is that you would go to war <clears throat> thinking of that stuff, yeah. but then that might not be your experience. You may not get to return home, but that's the hope, I guess, is that you want to be like Dorothy. That's, yeah, but that's, wanna... that's more clearly manifested in the latest stuff. Like if you start looking at post-World War II <laughs> incursions, that's where it becomes really gloomy. Like we're going we're gonna to get rid of communism completely and install a a new type, a new world, and it's going to be beautiful. So, so there was no Wizard of Oz at the beginning of the Vietnam War that people would go. Mm. No, I, well, I think certainly, like the whole era of the Vietnam movie yeah. is that that notion of the fantasy, the Wizard of Oz as fantasy, as the kind of um, maturation, rite of passage, and restoring of community and order doesn't exist. I think in the Vietnam era. Like, America's a completely, it's a fundamentally different Well, isn't place. everything about the Vietnam is a response to it? It's yeah. not like a propaganda. It's not like a hope and dream of what's going to happen. It's critique. Well, All the, the Vietnam the, movies the, are... The, really, the Vietnam War movies come through a lens of looking backward, whereas 1939, yeah. mm. 40 is looking forward, right? Like the yeah. war, So looking backward... It's difficult to assess Vietnam as having been a good situation. Oh, yeah. I didn't think we'd be talking about World War II. Yeah. But I want to know, but I, know I think you have to... Yeah. For Wizard of Oz, I think there has to be this discussion of what was what were the studios doing? And the studios were not just the hotbeds of entertainment. They were part... I mean, there's so much research. There was linked now. to government as well. Absolutely. Was, mm -hmm. They were linked... They, they, I mean, I'm not... Again, I'm not calling this propaganda. But there were nationalist sentiments. There were... Yeah. These films were about American exceptionalism. And you can see that through the 30s, right? You can see it in... You know, Capra, um, Mrs. Smith goes to Washington. So The Wizard of Oz for me is this incredible moment of this is what it means to be American. And Dorothy is our lens. She's like she's holding a hand through the great mythos of America. Like this is to be exceptional is to be in your home, to go home to the nation. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's an important reading. I'm kind of happy that we started with that because um, I just watched it last night. So I I enjoyed thinking about it in those terms. But then... I want to introduce another reading into it. Like, to what extent do you both feel it's in, it's just unbelievably ambitious and brave in introducing, like, the other or, or difference? Yeah. So have you yeah, heard of the yeah. phrase, and Kathy, my partner, told me about this yesterday. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it. But have you heard of the phrase, uh, a friend of Dorothy? Mm -hmm. Okay. So a friend of Dorothy. No, I've not heard of it either. I'm like, uh -huh. No, no, I have heard of okay. it. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. Uh, so typically that was used. Uh, for a gay man, the queer coded. Term. Yes. Yeah. Ah, friend of Dorothy. Now, it was what you mean, like one of the characters that accompany her on the Ilibrig Road? Well, no, no. Uh, in real life, no, no, I'm, I know, but oh, yeah. I mean that's what they're referring exactly, to. Exactly. Yeah. So the difference that they introduce, that there's there's clear sort of, you're on a farm, in I'm assuming you know the Bible Belt kind of yeah. thing, uh, uh, Kansas, and you don't have the the depictions of hyper masculinity in the film. Yep. At all. 
Right. That's a really great point. The five hands are not hypermasculine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The they're not John thing, Wayne working the. They're not the, John Wayne. They're the the vaudeville performers not trying Wayne. to not be gay. <laughs> they're not carrying guns at their side yeah, as yeah, everyone yeah. else at the time, you know, on, depicted on film. The other thing is, under legally, when 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 gay people were persecuted, um, that was actually code. It was part of language saying, "I'm a friend of Dorothy," mm. so that a person, in case they were police, they wouldn't know what you meant. It was an underground oh, coding fantastic. that was used. I've literally and never Garland, heard this. I was I was reading a lot about this late last night because I found it so fascinating. Judy Garland remains one of the great gay icons. So I knew that, because but I'd not Stonewall, heard... Because Stonewall, right? Wasn't Stonewall... Well, I'm assuming... Because Sto- well, Stonewall was 1969, Oh, right? no, I once read an essay uh, about her death or something was very, like, days later, uh, before or days before Stonewall, that it was oh, like, that in the, well, the zeitgeist of queer Because community. Stonewall was part of the whole upheaval of the 60s, and the great kind of, that moment that, uh, I think it was in was it San Francisco, maybe New York, I can't remember, but... Um, all those protests, right? And Judy Garland, I knew was a gay icon, remains one of the critical yeah. figures mm. in the Hollywood studio system for whom there is like a real sense of this was a subversive image. She represented something very different in the studio system. And as you said, all the friends of Dorothy. And I'm not, I'm not sort of saying, I mean, I think it's too much of a reach to say that that was coded into the original, perhaps. I, I doubt that the studio would have intentionally coded that into it. But the way it's evolved and been taken makes, for me anyway, that reading as important as the political mm. reading that we've just discussed. No, I totally agree. So the way the film evolved and the way the meaning evolved, um, just that massive, are you probably going to talk about this, Bruce, but the, the massive jolt between the black and white when she opens the door and then it's mm. that, that, that color. Well, that's my music. The flamboyance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it's I mean, so I, stunning. I, I loved thinking about that a lot yesterday when I was watching the movie. So, yeah. I um, I love that reading of um, Judy Garland as a certain icon, as a political icon and a representation of a certain politics. Um, I'm pretty sure that it would not have been intentional. The reason I say that is because this is a project of MGM. So this is Louis B. Mayer, right, who is himself a very like, – Creep. He's a, and so not only I'm is, saying is, it. is he's he a creep. creep, wasn't he like a but, so the horrible person? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also Arthur Arthur uh, Freed, who oversaw all the production of the, you know, all studios had certain things, right? Warner's did the gangster film, mm. um, you know, MGM with the musicals. So Arthur Freed was famous for being like a real creep, right? Mm-hmm. This and, and, and an authoritarian. He controlled all of that. So any musical was coming through the Freed production house, right? And stories are legend on about The Wizard of Oz and the degree of exploitation yeah. and abuse that took place. Um, so I don't think there was a real sense of we are doing something subversive against the political grain. Having said that, what I love is that audiences took that back. Right. But I also think in, in Dorothy's, in the performance of Judy Garland, there's an element of you can see, I can feel mm. the suffering of that abuse and reading about it makes yeah. total sense because she was, first of all, she was bound, like her breasts were bound yes. down. Well, to I, make I, her we should small. say she was 16. She was 16. Playing a child. Constantly harassed by yeah. the crew and 
um, the the little performers as the, well. Uh, were, what, what are they called? The Munchkins. Oh yeah, so they called the no, no, they're the not called Munchkins in the in in, in uh, the credits in the credits. Okay. And I found out that Singer was not referencing the fact that they sung, but that was the last name of the agent who booked them all. Um, <laughs> uh, but and and then she also had Louis um, Louis May, like uh, harassing her, being doing these horrible things to torture her, like not letting her wear her dress to her formal, Louis. all of these wow. things. But then also sexually, you know. Being a creep, and then the Munchkins were also were pinching her all the time. Yeah, that's for what some I read reason. as well. Like, yeah. Louis Bimet also instructed them to bring a, I mean, I don't know what we call it now, nutritionist on, yes. on, on, yeah, on yeah, set. Yeah. So that you wouldn't pick so up weight. So she had to, she was eating almost nothing. Yeah. Um, because she had to, she had to be a child. She was, they were basically mm. turning into a child. Um, I read also that they were medicating her. Yeah, heavily. in terms of like certain emotional cues and things yeah. like that. I mean, I think this is a really important discussion because I don't know if our listeners understand like what the studio system was. It was an absolute capitalist production enterprise, which meant that if you're the boss, if you're mm. the owner of the resources, you're going to control that to within an inch of its life, and you're going to make it into what you want because ultimately you need the box office, Yeah. right? So that's what they did. But these uh, people were on contracts that were just horrible and they were abused. I think these people were working six days a week and sometimes like 15 hours a day. I wanna, The mechanization of the human resources, the yeah. performers, this is something I, I do know from comedy background because it was um, – Bergson and then and Chaplin, like they they then wanted to emulate what was the mechanization of humans. So seeing Chaplin go through the cogs of a machine yeah. is iconic because it's what is happening to your workforce. But the vaudeville performers who are now wanting to do film are no longer just turning up and being drunk and performing, you know, for three or four shows a night in a in a live space. They are becoming non-stop training so that when they're caught onto set, same for Jackie Chan and the, and the Peking Opera preparing people to be stunt people on, on sets. It's about having your resources ready to go at the yep. ready and then be turned into a machine and work non-stop. So you can see it. Like when you watch Paul Toto, um, yep. the, the dog performer, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the in Somewhere Over the Rainbow, like don't get me wrong, I cry every time. Yeah. Like I can't I love that so comprehend much. what that does yeah. to me. But just watching Paul Toto have to walk up and put its paw up and you can see it's looking off camera. But that's how I feel about all the performers. Yep. And I, 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 unfortunately, the sad thing is they're amazing. The, yeah. the the what the the three um, the vaudevillian the the Tin Man the Scarecrow and the Lion do the Scarecrow flopping constantly is some of the best physical work you'll ever see yeah, wow. from a comic performer the way that he can't stand then flops back down his knees buckle like that stuff's killing him you know yeah. and and the original guy meant to play the Tin Man the the, the had an allergic reaction they put asbestos <laughs> oh, that yeah, is in the s- the snow in the scene where Scarecrow yeah, and Dorothy is asbestos just dripping dripping onto them. Um, like they're, these performers are doing their best. It's like a real struggle yeah. of mechanized workforce. And, and it's what making the studios brilliant. did. It's yeah. why the studio system is unlike any other um, national filmmaking. You know, mm. It's not like UFA or you know the Italian studios or, or, or Pinewood or whatever. Um, the American studio system was based on the capitalist enterprise model. And... The big studios like the MGMs or the Warners, they were able to control that so carefully. And it's like you say, Craig, what do they produce? They produce brilliant product. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. I think, that, look, I, I just want to say that's an important point because it does sound horrible. But when I hear it, 
it, it's not unlike what's happening throughout industrialization. Yeah. So hyper-industrialization mm. took people and put them <laughs> yeah. alongside process yeah. and just said, well, you're the next variable and yeah. we're going to make you as efficient as this and input, we, which is a machine. And even though we can go further and go, they didn't necessarily put them alongside, they reconceptualized the person as process. You know, like yeah, yeah but that, that's minors. what I'm saying. It, it, yeah. it gets positioned as one piece of a sequence. Yeah, and and you know, so what happened in film, that really isn't surprising. That that's not surprising. And a lot of you know, at that time, and you move into the into post like World War Two, and then industrialization, and then it spreads around the world. Like J- Japan really mm. um, perfected this. And just to say, we, we, you know, all of us are so fortunate to listen to Ari Aster at our Ari Aster um, symposium, Sympo- yeah. and talking about the production apparatus of contemporary American cinema and the ins and outs of that, and you still see degrees of exploitation, degrees of control. Like, where does the artist fit? Where does Judy Garland sit mm. as an artist? Right? We've been very ethereal here. We're talking <laughs> academic stuff. We're talking about the wars. Yeah. Let's talk about how good this movie is because that's something. It's really beautiful. It blows my I couldn't believe. I haven't seen it for like 10 years. Yeah. I put it on. It's blown my mind. Everything about I can't believe it was made in 1939 for the first well, part I, of design it. Design-wise, uh, it's so imaginative. It's a little bit like what Fantasia was, I yes. think, for Disney, where – Yes, we can say it's a straight mainstream movie, made a lot of money, etc. But if you really just take a step back, in some ways, it's kind of an art house movie, yeah. right? Because the design is so eclectic, so um, outside of the norms of classical design or the studio system. Mm. You know, the Technicolor just punches you in the face when you first get it. And that was extremely bold in 1939. Most films, I mean, I know it's not the first use of Technicolor, but that was a black and white era. Okay, watching it yesterday, I think it might be the first time I've ever seen it end to end in one sitting. I know that's going to yeah. sound crazy, mm. but no, because it had so much airplay growing up, well, you'd it was catch bits of it all the time. I've seen bits and pieces all yeah. for years and years since since being a child. So, in watching it end to end yesterday, uh, like a, a couple of things um, occurred to me. I wasn't aware of like that strict relationship between the pre Oswald. And the the, the Kansas yeah. world, right? So you know, Even like the dreamscape. So thing. so when the well, I forget the lady's name on the bicycle, the, the neighbor. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. so as she's going through, and then um, Dorothy looks away a little bit. She comes out, and then she morphs into the witch, and she flies yeah, along. Yeah. But the bicycle becomes the, the 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 broom. I I wasn't aware of all of that, or maybe I've forgotten, or something like that. Um, then the second thing I want to ask was: Is there any room in this movie to ask? Was it all a dream or did it happen? Or is there any Great question. uncertainty? Well, that's the wonderful ambiguity, right? Because it doesn't make it absolutely Yeah, but clear. I was under the impression that there were like little clues or Easter eggs. Now, I look really hard and I started researching it. <laughs> He's gone no down clues. the rabbit hole. He's He's this is what he always does. Okay, there was something in the Speaking back of my head that, that said that when she got back, yeah. there was something in my memory that said that when she got back, there was like a like a flash of color somewhere in the black and white scenes oh, or something boy. to like like a Christopher Nolan kind yeah, of yeah. sort of thing. But I, I couldn't see anything. I don't remember anything like that. I, I Obviously, the characters are there, so you see them. I, I'd like to propose, what happens to Miss Gulch? Like, that is still a threat. If this was all a dream, she's coming back with that order to destroy the dog. <laughs> so what? here's what I think. She's the one that is killed in the tornado because we see her on her bicycle being whipped away into the tornado like the cow in Twister. Ah, that's <laughs> We're seeing her, and I'm like, okay, 
maybe that's her fate because there's no more fear at the end. Everyone wakes up and goes, come on, we're all good, dude. But it's like, well, but hang on, there's still this order to kill the dog, which yep. is the whole catalyst for the whole film. And it would make sense that you don't show that on screen because yeah. then that would bring it into kind so of that, realism that, rather that's than That's what fantasy. makes I me sleep at that's, night, that's thinking that she d- yeah. died in the twister. Yeah, But for me, there's, I don't think there's an inkling of, I don't think it was as ambitious as saying, well, you know, was there, is there another world that she went into? Or, or I don't even think there's an ambiguity there. I think this is just kind of an allegory that occurred yeah. through this, and, and that's the end of it. And I, I kind of like think, it like that. Yeah, we, we're also coming at this from a post-Christopher Nolan world or post-M. Mm. Night Shyamalan world, where we're or trying to go, oh, Matrix world or well, post-Matrix, you know, where what exactly is reality? What's, I think if you go back to 1939, you've got a history of MGM. I mean, these are the guys that are doing musicals that are essentially fantasies. Mm. You've got Walt Disney uh, as a major fantasy production studio. I don't know that it would have been that uncomfortable for a spectator to go, Ah, oh, there's a sort of interesting slippage you between dream and reality. I think you could sit with that as a kind of representation. Whereas for us, I think in the post-realism American cinema, we don't like that stuff. We don't like the discomfort yeah. of not knowing. And but you're also trained, like even watching Abbott and Costello films, which were just comedies, there'd still be three songs in it. Yeah. You know, the Andrews sisters would pop in and just sing a song, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we're in the And they were suspiciously always hanging out at clubs where songs were happening in these movies because they started to make it, you know, part yeah. of the world, not just singing because you're sad. But MGM growing up in the thirties, you'd be watching these things going, okay, it's just the mode of communication. Like Bollywood now, you watch yeah. a Bollywood film, you're going to get some songs. Yeah, it's just and the also way you talk. So we got to say, hey, sound only came in about 1927, right? Mm. So uh, the whole MGM musical took Hollywood by storm because this is what you can do with sound. You know, yeah, you can sync sound, which is tricky, but imagine singing and and listening to people sing in front of you. So you know, jazz singer was such a phenomenon, and then you've got you know, Gold Diggers of 1933, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorites, and you've got Busby Berkeley. So we've got to remember that this is an era where you're going to push the medium. And the way you do it is And MGM sound. would be such a brand that you knew MGM was oh. releasing this movie, so you'd be expecting Absolutely. Music. You were pushing it as an MGM movie. Yeah. Like, I did a whole bunch of work once on how studios promoted their films. Nobody put a Victor Fleming movie. <laughs> no, they would say things like, the latest musical from MGM. Yeah, yeah. We take you yeah. to Oz. Oh, and that's, the that's literally how they talk about I'd it. I'd heard yeah. of Victor Fleming because of Gone with the Wind, but I didn't know Victor Fleming was Wizard of Oz. Yeah. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but the other thing that I found interesting is like the solutions to the problems that each of the strange characters have. Yes. Oh, okay. So when they go, well, you always add this. Um, you just need this to attach and you're fixed. That to me was an interesting message because if we're talking about difference... It's kind of like saying you're not really different if you view it in this way. And that to me was, you know, in today's kind of parlance or, or, or discussion. Certainly in thing. the late 30s, uh, I mean, all the way through, you know, to the 60s, maybe difference is really bad. Difference is a threat. Mm. Like if you think about the McCarthy era, for example, in America, the difference is like what's happening over there, right? Those people are crazy. There's a whole political ideology that we need to be careful of because we're America. I totally agree with that. The basic narrative of this movie is the thing you need to be yourself is already in yourself. Yeah. And what you need to learn is that you have to discover it through your your, your acts, your Which, deeds. Bringing it, is that not what Matrix is? Is it not Neo learn it's exactly that it's always the same in thing. himself? Yeah. I think that becomes the great Hollywood fantasy. We should move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is 1999's The Matrix. 
American filmmaking siblings the Wachowskis had only made one film, an erotic crime thriller from 1994 called Bound that centred around a lesbian love affair and a scheme to steal money from the mob. It was well received by critics and for their second film, the siblings produced a 600-page stylized storyboard to help convince Warner Brothers to give them $60 million, which they secured and headed down to our hometown of Sydney, Australia to begin shooting The Matrix. Remember the, the hype? That occurred uh, when they when, when they were in town. Out here. Oh boy! I actually know a guy who worked in uh, the law firm. Yeah. In the building where they shot the big shootout. Oh, yeah, I know all said, the stunt team. Yeah, and he said you could yeah. you couldn't go down into the garage. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. about two weeks, I think. We'll get onto yeah. all the stories of behind the scenes, but for now, it's the story. We see a computer hacker named Neo. Now, get this, guys. If you rearrange the word Neo, you can spell the word one. <laughs> so, I mean, these guys aren't dullards, you know, the Wachowskis, they know I what mean, they're there's doing. there's such a level of, of just creativity. I just mean, I'm sorry, no, 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 I'm sorry to I, ruin your entire PhD. No, no, but we're, Why didn't I put that in the PhD? No, but we're, we're, we're making fun amongst each other now. Yeah, we are. Uh, we're not making fun of the fact that no. Neo is an anagram of one. It just, it works perfectly in the bloody movie, <laughs> right? I remember Nada from They Live. That's he's some good figure. stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> he's Jeebus. All right, the story is he's a computer hacker named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves received cryptic messages on his console which lead him on an adventure he didn't really go looking for. He comes face to face with a leather-clad collective of vigilantes led by Morpheus and played by Lawrence Fishburne. Morpheus offers Neo the chance to find out why he's being followed by suave government agent types and Neo takes it. After swallowing the red pill, Neo wakes up in the future inside a pod and later discovers that most humans are now being used by machines for energy and their minds are being kept active via computer signals inside a simulated world known as the Matrix. Now, Bruce, you can correct me if I got this synopsis. Well, no, he's not waking up in the future, though. He's waking up in the not present. The future? But it's a complicated oh, okay. one because... But the he, future to what he's... Because uh, you wanna, start but, with him, right? But, but hang on, he doesn't time travel. No, okay, up. good point. Okay, he he yeah. wakes up in what is... Okay, but what I mean, is not, well, this is not time cop. What it would be his... <laughs> Back to okay. we're back to no, Ron. Sorry, I love time. No, Go. it's a great point because you know what the Matrix made us do? What? It made us shift out of the time travel movie into the virtual movie. Because a so lot of people it's not uh, about okay, leaping in okay. time. It's leaping in I'm sorry, space. dude, but you've forgotten about Lawnmower Man. <laughs> yeah, but the comparisons between the comparison when Matrix came out, the comparisons and just reading reviews again between that and the Terminator, a key distinction is this is not a time travel movie. Right. This is a simulation movie. I'm halfway, and I'm gonna have a I'm lot halfway to say through about that. the synopsis, guys. Go, Come go, on okay. now. The vigilantes are all hoping that Neo is the saviour that they've been, again, if they just rearrange the letters, um, <laughs> that they've been searching for. A human who has the power to influence the Matrix from within. So Neo then learns the rules of the Matrix, how their enemy works, and he also meets an oracle who tells him what he needs to hear. Eventually, a turncoat on board <laughs> the ship makes life difficult in both the real world and the simulated world. Heroes die, villains are beaten up by the bucket loads, and Neo discovers the power to influence the world from the inside, and he discovers that he is in fact the one. The film is littered with visual effects both in the real world scenes and the simulated world scenes. It has extremely precise and fast martial arts and stunts accomplished at times by the actors themselves and was innovative in many aspects of filmmaking, most famously for inventing bullet time which gives the viewer the illusion of moving around within a frozen moment of time. 
It turned its $60 million budget into nearly half a billion dollars worldwide. It won four Oscars and was immediately approved for two sequels, which unfortunately struggled to live up to the hype, narrative, and cultural impact of the first film. Just as Dorothy's statement about not being in Kansas anymore became famous, the red pill analogy became synonymous with entering a new world. In recent years, the term has also been co-opted by the manosphere and other right-wing pundits who use it to mean uh, becoming aware of the liberal agenda. Yeah, it's interesting because it's both on the right and left, right? You know, if you think about what is criticised to be like woke culture, mm. woke is to be awake, to to come to you. Well, I think that's true, but I think the yeah. uh, people who right really with woke it. will just say woke, whereas yeah. they'll say, no, nah, I'm red pilled against it, dude. Do people really say that, do they? I'm red pill. Yeah, yeah, I'm red pill. And also, oh, red wow. pill is also in the manosphere, meaning I have learned the secret code that women hate me and that Chad's are the only guys that get Can laid. I say, and, I'm going to be know. using the term manosphere. All through the next week, okay? <laughs> You're thinking of manscaping, which is a whole different thing. Now, Herschel, you did not write a PhD on this film, which is why I'm glad you're going to be talking about it and not Bruce. What's your take on The Matrix? It's, it's kind of nothing I can say in an objective sense that hasn't been said about The Matrix already. Great. So thank I'm you. Gonna, I'm <laughs> thank you. That concludes and that we're episode. Done. <laughs> I'm going to start with um, something that is really subjective to me, um, and that's the Canadian author, William Gibson. Mm-hmm. I started reading William Gibson when I was probably 13 years old, and um, he wrote two books, Neuromancer and Count Zero, Mm -hmm. and all his latest stuff really just touch on it as well. But William Gibson is probably the person that is responsible for bringing the concept of the Matrix to the world. So, for example, in that book, you've got a person who's an offsider who doesn't fit in, who's got a job at a security company, and that person overthrows everything by and the phrase is to jack into the matrix, so it's a world that exists there. And, and I think Neuromancer coins the actual term cyberspace. Yes, yeah, cyberspace was first mm-hmm. used like, by because we were fumbling before: is it space? Is it time? And it's in fact Gibson who gives us a phrase that can be used, which is cyberspace, right? Which became so. I also associate him with cyber goths. Yeah, right. yeah, the and steampunk and, and the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now the other thing that that leads into is movies like Tron. So yeah. Tron did the same thing. I think William Gibson is an important starting point. Because the idea that um, there's an alternate world, a digital world that somehow exists, that's, that's not new to the Matrix, right? Like it, it, it's existed before, but it's a really important concept. And I think that's why it touched the nerve um, with the way it was presented in this case. The other thing I want to say is um, I, I was reading reviews, reviews from – I think it's always interesting to read reviews that were released at the time of the film. And if you were to compare those reviews to what people think of this movie now, I think – Nine out of ten of them are miles off the mark of, of this I mean, movie. The, for the, the reviews of the of the, of moment. the Matrix. Yeah, people so a lot of people, it. I mean, a lot of people are saying great spectacle, lacks emotion, lacks character. A lot of people are very critical of Keanu Reeves. Why would you pick sure. a person like that with his, with his you know, limited emotional range, I suppose? <laughs> um, I remember vividly everyone saying, how cliched is this movie? Yeah. And not being able to get a complete different register of, 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 of textuality, which is referentiality, quotation, homage. People just didn't get they that. They didn't get it. Right? Like, this movie is genuinely, like William Gibson was back then, the first time I read Neuromancer, I couldn't understand it. Um, it, it introduced a new language, um, a digital language, really, that was a part of narrative. I couldn't understand it. I had to read it again. And what I found was 
the more you, uh, a little bit like train spotting. You know, when you first yeah. read train spotting, yeah. and you think you're reading another language, but yeah. then you eventually pick up the slang a little bit, and then you be uh, you're able to then be that language. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah. So William Gibson did that for the digital sphere. What the Matrix did for me was, I w- if I wouldn't have guessed it could be even remotely possible to take all of that and present it in a movie in such a way that would make it completely accessible and at the same time not trite. It's mm. it, it just for me, it's like the most remarkable achievement. It's yeah. one of the movies that there's a before and after. There's a before Matrix and then after the Matrix, everything and is I different. Wanna, I, I so agree. Like I'm going to say it's probably the most important film of my life, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Be, uh, certainly what it's meant for me professionally – what it meant for the world was to take us from an analogical world of the real of the matrix and kind of um, eject us from that and into the ecstasy of digital life, right? Mm. What had done, like, okay, it's not like that was the first digital. We talked about Terminator 2, mm-hmm. right? This was completely different. This was two very intelligent filmmakers, the Wachowskis trying to philosophize what it meant to be in a digital world. It's almost like the refrain, you know, Madonna, middle of the 80s, capitalism, I'm a material girl. Mm-hmm. This was almost like the Wachowskis going, we are now digital. And but we're going to try and, we're going to allegorize it, we're going to model it for you. We, you know when Morpheus says, you know, this is your residual self-image. You know, this is what you look like when you project your imaginary into a virtual world. You're not you. You're the ideal you. I think you know, it introduces all of those terms have become now so profound for us. It introduces a level of like existential crisis into the film that you know movies like Two Thousand One Blade Runner they have those things, but when are you going to find a movie that can grapple with those issues at at that level? And at the same time, you've got incredible kung fu sequences. Yeah. Mm. You've got the greatest. You've got invention. You've got invention of use of special effects. Yep. You've got invention of, you know, depiction of scale, at, you know, to that level. I mean, when that building breaks out, like I'm going to do that for my mise-en-scene because I, you know, there's a million things you could do in this movie, but I'm doing that. So I'm, I'm going to talk about that image which Margaret and David talked about in the movie show the first <laughs> time I saw it before seeing the movie, when that building, the, oh, uh, well, we'll, we'll get, get on get to right. it. We'll yeah, yeah. I want to I take us back to 99. It was being shot. Everybody had a job, and I had friends who were twins, not you two, other friends, um, actor. Uh, How uh, dare actually you? A big, uh, yeah, much better looking, taller, cooler, <laughs> smarter dudes. Anyway, they had to go on They're the... They're not the twins out of the, the, the sequel, are they? No, 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 no. no. But they, they, I was going to ask that. It's there's not those two guys in, um, Martin Place where Keanu's being bumped into? Or yeah, is yeah, that? yeah, yeah. So they had to go and be that. For some reason, they needed twins to be in that constantly walking past. Well, I think it's because it's the idea of the doppelganger in the yes. virtual world. You can reproduce infinitely. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. But remember, a glitch in the Matrix when two people walk past yeah, and right. see the same so thing. So they wanted to. There's a lot of that through the Matrix. Yeah, if you look yeah. at it, there's a lot of that mm. happening. So th- that was happening. There were people working at, at practical effects companies where I'd go in and see... Um, you know, a, a baby Neo with cables sticking out the back of him. And I'm like, what the hell? Everyone's like looking at this weird stuff that's being created yeah. for things. They were all through Sydney. You'd look out windows. I'd be visiting goths after parties. And you look out a window and you'd go, oh, see what's going on in there. See those bright lights over in that big tall building. Like the air, there was so much discussion. And then when the movie came out, 
the marketing campaign because you can't market a film and say, yeah, this film's just going to change everything, eh? Yeah. Because that's, that's not a marketing campaign. You can't do that. So what they chose to do was, and I remember specifically on a bus in Newtown, um, you know, King Street opposite yeah, yeah, the yeah. station, there's, there's a famous patch where there's always posters or nowadays there's painting. But what they had was just posters and the only thing on the poster was, what is the Matrix? Yep. Yeah. Well, this is one of the earliest memories I have of um, almost, not subliminal, but seeding something coming. I know. And and it was to make you, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> what, do I have to be worried? What's going on? And then it was like a one eight hundred number, maybe. <laughs> and, 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 and they had, and <laughs> they had early early marketing on TV. Was you can't what is it? You can't be told what the Matrix is, yes. or you uh, you yeah. can't be. It was something like basically it was you can't. Well, it's Morpheus's line, right? Yeah, you, you can't, can't be told what the Matrix yeah. is. You have to experience yep. it for yourself. The whole the, the hype around this movie, yeah. the marketing. As I watched it this time, I was like. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was the point. Because for the first, I don't know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, you don't know what it is. It's a. He's, no, it's also very dense. Which, which right? is what I tried to write in my synopsis is bringing us back to that, just that original moment of, no, this is like um, uh, North by Northwest. This is a guy who accidentally gets involved in something that's quite big. And then it turns out that it's a thing that now people use to describe a whole, mm. you know, the world has changed because yeah. of it. But before that moment, it is meant to be just an everyday dude that gets involved in something. I, mean, I think it's just such an astonishingly precise work, right? Textually, in terms of this, I studied this to death, right? The artwork, the concept stuff, you know, the Wachowskis, as I said, when we did They Live, the Wachowskis required people to read the philosophy of virtuality, mm. right? They Now, I don't know what, I mean, I suppose it's for the actors to understand and the crew to understand this is what we're going for. But how many filmmakers can you say want to inject their vision with a philosophical basis? Who's doing that in mainstream Hollywood on a $60 million budget in a, in a kind of <laughs> weird kung fu action cyberpunk yeah. movie? Um, I really love what you said about the creativity of it. There's a wonderful interview where they talk at bullet time, right? Mm. And I, I'm usually critical of the way the big studios, um, like the big corporatized integrated studios, say from the 80s, would use special effects just to up the ante of, of the yeah. image. That is not what the Wachowskis wanted. They literally went to John Gator, who headed the, the company, the special company, and said, we want to push the idea of virtuality, space and time, but through effects. So John Gator literally says, so I said to them, look, maybe we could, if we experiment in this way, we could do this. And anyone who watches Bullet Time mm. knows that on one level, it's a very simple concept. You are moving at incredible speed, but I'm going to show it to you very slowly. But conceptually, it challenges everything we think of in terms of our perception. Mm. There's an amazing use of visual effects, right? And so, you know, maybe, you know, I, I don't like the Avatar moves, but maybe that's the other example I can think where someone tried to push it, right? The Matrix... Uh, and then it has something thematically that so few blockbusters. But Bruce, you would know this from coming from the, their source graphic novels, like their love yeah. of that. Oh, absolutely. And, and the idea that in a graphic novel you can 
mess with time. Yep. You say, here's, here's an you impact. Can do anything you want. And yep. look at this impact in close up and feel that and imagine that. And that's what they did. They, they started to introduce the idea of, oh, time is. Time, time is elastic. Oh, space is yeah, elastic. But yeah. it's, it's that expression of in that linear time space of watching a film and how we have to, as humans, watch a film. They then slowed it down and put you in amongst it and then they sped it back up. But they made you reference it. It wasn't like. Yep. It wasn't like Wizard of Oz where it's a musical expression of how I'm feeling and this is what's happening. It's more like, no, this is happening in real time, but you're flying around inside mm. of, we've got the control of time and space here and we're showing and we didn't, off. And the other, like the way you describe that thing of we've been shown something about space and time. Mm. We also, I think in mainstream cinema, which is why I think the critics just couldn't keep up with this movie, we didn't even have a language for that sort of thing. Mm. Like I remember so vividly, I'm sitting next to Rebecca, we were at uh, Hoyt's Broadway, this is 1999, and uh, so first image of Bullet Time is Trinity, the famous opening where she leaps up, the camera rotates 180 degrees in freeze yeah, frame, right? Yeah. And now I had never seen that shot. Like, I mean, if anyone wants to have a look at my book toward a new film aesthetic, I do a full analysis. This is your first book, but, right? Yeah, my first book. Your yeah. first book. So we should shout it out. I mean, this, if you love the Matrix and you're listening for that, this check is it out. the I guy do a that huge wrote the reading, book. Right? Yeah. Um, and I try. I absolutely believe that that moment in Hoyts, which is I'm sitting there, the, the camera rotates. I remember so vividly, and Rebecca remembers it because then I went and did the PhD. Um, I said, I whispered to Rebecca. Do you know what just happened there? <laughs> like, because I, I, I had never seen yeah, this in a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, th that was the moment for me of like the spark, and my whole PhD became I want to understand that, not mm. just technologically because I went down that rabbit hole, but philosophically. What did it mean about images? What did it mean about the way I feel space and time? Right. And I still think today the Matrix pushed us into, like, confronting digitality like no other movie has ever done. Mm. And it's now not even possible for any movie to do it, right? They had that moment. And I want to I, I, I just want to well. shout out, I just remember where I saw Cinema 5, George Street, mm. Second Weekend, Brian Moses, Nerida Waters, shout out. They were all there with me. It was <laughs> yeah. a packed cinema. It was a Saturday at about 1 o'clock. It was all so those shows were electric. Fast. It's also, for me anyway, one of the best depictions of the hero's journey in, mm. in that formal structure I think it's the best hero's journey in the history of Hollywood. Like, I really do. I think it's better than Star Wars. I think... Better than Star Borat? <laughs> no, no, nothing's better than Borat. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. He's, He's back. back. We cannot let we Borat... we got to bring it back, man. we got to bring it back. I've just started watching a <laughs> subsequent movie film. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I think it's the best uh, hero's journey. I agree with that. The difference is the hero's journey in the Joseph Campbell uh, mythology is... Uh, a journey into like the space and time of the analogical world. What the Matrix gives you is the hero's journey as it crosses into virtuality. That's right. so, so and the that's, reinvention. Yeah, so it's so, truly the, yeah. the the neo experience, which is right. why it's so important. And it's been, you know, I don't know, copied so many times now. It's become a it's become a, a narrative world all of its mm. own with other people now. I want to get one thing out as well before we finish on the Matrix, which is when I now teach the film, mm. the Legacy is not just um, digitality and the virtual world and us becoming digital as a, as a global society, but to, to think that the Wachowskis were matching that to a much bigger concept of being fluid and gender fluidity. Mm, mm. So now when I teach the film, what I find really fascinating is that that whole movie is run through with um, 
incredibly creative approaches to gender diversity, fluidity, complexity. And this was in 1999. Well, Bruce, can I quickly this say? This is like 20 years before. The interesting queer coding of, of Dorothy yeah. and how we've picked accidentally two films that have that fluidity. Oh, when I, them, when I right? teach The Matrix and I show I, uh, the, the coming into the lobby, yeah. I literally, we do a whole gendered reading of their bodies. Ah. Like okay, I, I we look at androgyny. Yeah, it's, it's so clear. Um, it, you know, and we can't dismiss the film as just about virtuality. But it's about fluidity the of beautiful all kinds. irony as well as that uh, the Wachowski's final project in in all their filmmaking mm. is is that fluidity and but the way the red pill is represented in the manosphere it's like sucked in dudes yeah. because that is the opposite of what the filmmakers want yep. from I you say, yeah, yeah for sure. in, in the original storyboards that the Wachowski's presented to the studio um, Switch who is the character dressed in white mm. in the Matrix so Switch in the world of the real Switch is male, yeah. And then when they go into the matrix, oh. switch actually Hence switches the name to switch. Theme. Yes, and but I just I wish they kept that because that would have been so stunning. The studio, the studio said we're not going to do that. We're not going to accept. That. Did they say too confusing or too, too subversive? No, I think too subversive. Too yeah, subversive. Right. Because so if you think was, about it, we're talking now literally gender transformation mm. between the real and the matrix. And obviously we know that would have been part of the philosophical subtext of the film, what yeah. the Wachowski was doing. But the studio would have gone, no way, we're not going yeah, there, yeah. man. Which I think is an interesting Because in, in, in essence, that would be a trans figure between the real and the virtual, right? That would mm, be amazing. Mm. That, that, talk about being so ahead of its time, right, in terms of the concepts we now live with and work with. Oh, there you go. It's a shame Warner Brothers stopped it. And Village Roadshow, those evil dogs from Australia. It's, <laughs> it's, do you find it weird that their leader is at the head of the most famous film? Like for us growing up, Village Roadshow was... Mm. The hokey oh, exhibitor in this yeah. country only, you know, yeah. and then maybe they did. I always like those VHS tapes with the, the yeah, yeah, the and it was just an iconic thing. And then going to America and collecting tapes from there and meeting filmmakers over there, the Village Roadshow is not a thing for them. It's just a, a the, the little Australian thing. But to think <laughs> that it's at the head of the Matrix, it blows my mind. I know. Yeah. All right. Well, there it is. That's that's the Matrix. Let's move on to our mise en scene. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scene, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce. What have you chosen from The Wizard of Oz? I think the sequence that really demonstrated what The Wizard of Oz was going to do technologically is the switch from sepia. I mean, I don't know if you want to call it sepia black and white. It's not really black and white, mm. but it's a kind of tonality that we associate with an older form of cinema and an older form of imaging to what was so blinding and a kind of assault on the senses of the audience, which was Technicolor. And I love the way the film stages that for us mm. you know I, I one of the things that I'm very interested in in the classical Hollywood era is that a lot of people think of classical Hollywood as the most um, stable form of, of, of um, sort of representation that movies are about you immerse yourself in story you should never draw attention to the medium but if you really carefully watch some of the great films like Wizard of Oz that's not true at all Hollywood movies were always drawing attention to their technologies, to their style. And this sequence in The Wizard of Oz commences with the tornadoes kind of settling down, the house settles down as it falls down. Dorothy, uh, you know, we, we've got, it's obviously a set. We've got the sepia tonality. Um, camera pans to the right. Dorothy walks around, opens the door. And the most stunning shot is a kind of uh, longer shot 
over uh, sort of side of Dorothy, over shoulder, and we see the Technicolor world mm. beyond the door. Now, I can only imagine. Can you imagine being in 1939, going mm. to the movies? You're in like I don't know one of those cinemas with well, that seat 1,500 people. Colors new. It's fairly it's, new. It's, it exists, old, but yeah. nobody. It's not. It is. It hasn't been normalized. It, well, it, for instance, the idea no, not normalized, but also testing. In Technicolor, the, the yellow brick road started showing up as green in their first test. Like <laughs> well, it's they not, had so much trouble this is, and with I Technicolor. Should, we should remind audience, this is film. This is chemicals yeah. on, on you know, phosphate. or yeah. on, on, on It's just a chemical process. It is not digitally mucking around with Actually, we should knobs. also say that we're not filming. Di- like, we have to create the colour. Yeah. Colour is a creative thing in itself, right? Technicolor uses, like, really complex chemical processes, complex ratios of colour. When you first see that Technicolor image through the door, even now, I think you'd be staggered if well, you're not I, can seeing Can I the talk film. about how they did yeah, it? Like the, yeah. the, the moment is they switched the film stock from the sepia or from the... the it's, it's not really sepia. It's, I think it's, that's the important point because it's, it's almost halfway. I was looking at it yesterday. It's like halfway between black and white yeah. and sepia. It's yeah. An well, it's a tint, right? It's a yeah, tinted... It's a tint, and that's definitely a throwback to an earlier form of cinema where tinting was very common. Yeah. Right? And it also, I think, is meant to evoke black and white. It's got that brown hue yep. that, that's associated with old photos. Oh, and I think this goes back to Dorothy Lang's work. And it's, for people who have not seen it, these are stunning, stunning wow. images of place and oh, time. That, that one, these that, dust bowl images. Herschel showing is a computer screen, but there's that woman that's holding her forehead. That's oh, very famous. One, yeah. So, um, and that's what, in the mid-30s, right? Mm. So, I think what is happening in the opening sequence of the film is the story is trying to say, this is Dust Bowl America. There's mm. an iconography of it. We know it from these photographs. And I'm going to blow that apart by opening the door to the Technicolor fantasy. They open the door. What they do to do the, to achieve it, to do a transition, because it isn't a cut. It isn't like she looks and then it cuts. Mm. It is a transition the camera walks through. So they paint the side of the set, the door, in a sepia tone. Yeah. So they haven't, they're not filming in the sepia tone. They've put in the, the cartridge or the reel that's Technicolor. They're shooting what is in real life painted sepia, like how people dress up for Halloween yeah, as yeah, a black yeah. and white character. They get a stand-in for Dorothy that is also completely painted in sepia, in black and white tones, as is the door. So when they open the door of the set, they're looking at colour, using colour film, so then as that character walks through, the camera pans a little to the right mm. because the black and white stand-in performer steps away. Dorothy oh, wow. steps from the other side of the door, the front of the door, into it, and the camera catches up with it now in her colour outfit as Judy Garland, and the camera pushes through into the new colourful world. So it's an excellent old-school trick. All So I also think, because we are obviously now children of the digital era of cinema, mm where everything is done in digital virtuality, these people have to imagine how to get these effects. So when you're looking at this glorious Technicolor world, it's a leap for them to think, how do we create this? And the real achievement is, I think, not to cop out and say, let's cut to Technicolor. Mm. It's to say, I want you to look into the Technicolor world and I'm going to continue the shot. There's there's a a few famous touchstones for um, television when it went from black and white and color. Mm. Every country did it different. In America, there was a broadcast and it was the newsreader stepping over from there. And back in the day, the newsreader also was presenting for the whole day of television. Would walk from the black black and white over into the color set and they'd switch it on and they'd do a countdown. In Australia, we had a great moment where um, comedians, uh, Auntie Jack show, um, these comedians did a thing where 
where color was coming in from the top and they were like trying to push it up like <laughs> Sherlock Jr. You know, they were trying to That's push excellent. the color. It was coming in. They're making jokes about it's coming. It's coming. And they're trying, Is that you know, stuff on YouTube? Yeah, that's a famous oh, YouTube clip. ABC up. Archives have that. that. You can find that. Okay. The the introduction of color in this country. But this is also an excellent way to muck around with... The achievement, I think, is not to cut. Mm. I think if you cut, then you defeat the purpose. And There's I no point say, there. I watched this last night, and I I was watching like a, uh, an upgraded to 4K file mm. of Wizard of Oz. And that is that, scene, is that on your phone at the pub? Is that... No? <laughs> I tested it on my phone. Okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. But sorry. this was on a big, big screen. Hang on. What would David Lynch say? <laughs> you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. Get real. Get real. <laughs> when I saw it, it was one of those moments where I nearly fell off the, yeah. off the seat. It was. Mm. It's also what we haven't said is, what about the design of the Technicolor world when you first yeah. enter it? But, and it's that's an important point because when you, you move painting, into it, gra- you know, graphism versus objects mm. um, s- perfectly sutured together in Ex, you know, deep focus, but the focus is so deep because you've got mountains going in painting yeah. in perspective. So, the, so, so the effect happens. I, I felt that the effect happened in two time frames. One was when the door opens, you just freak out. But the <laughs> truth is, it's longer term because when you follow into the world, yeah. you then get an expanse of the world and every part of it is so precise yep. that... It's, it's about 30 seconds of wonder. You're just going, you've got to be kidding me. There's a sort of kitschiness to the mm-hmm. aesthetic. You know, for example, you can see the, the, the plasticity of the leaves, of, uh, of the plants and so on. So there's this kind of hyper, you know. Artificial. Artificial. Yeah. I love the heart. There's an artificiality to the mm. set. And that itself was uh, like a kind of transgressive thing. I read the yeah. only shot that was actually on location was an early shot of her walking down the road with some clouds in the background. Yeah, right. And everything else is a yeah. set. Yeah. I mean, this was a great era where they shot on sets and huge sound stages. But ambitious though, right? And Damn. control yeah. production. But of course, you you know, this precedes the rise of realism. But what you have is that stunning studio set aesthetic that defined Hollywood. All right, there it is. That's our mise en scene. Herschel, let's move on. Mise en scene. Get up. get up, get up. Neo says to Trinity, can you fly the helicopter? She says, she gets onto tank. She says, I need the schematics for. And then her eyes close yeah, flicker, and yeah. they start to flicker behind the eyelids. And then she says, let's go. Everything about it is so hyper cool. Yeah. Like you were talking about the costuming when they arrive at the, law, at the, at the shootout. Everything is so stylized. Um, from here, they fly in the helicopter. The helicopter pulls out the front of the building that Morpheus is is Al Captivin. He is handcuffed, his hands behind his back, sitting on an office chair, and here Agent Smith has gone on this massive philosophical exposition about why the machines are so superior to human beings, and human beings are parasites. Neo's holding a minigun, right? But he's holding the minigun, and then we get that shot from below it where it's raining shells of bullets. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, the excess of it is just overwhelming. But what's beautiful about this is then you cut to Morpheus. It's like Rocky when he's down on the canvas, but he gets this, it's like a montage. Yeah. And Morpheus starts just going nuts. He starts like like Hulk Hogan going through a fugue when he started to, <laughs> to get his strength back. His hands start to shake behind his back and he pulls the handcuffs apart, gets up, starts running, and then Agent Smith realizes what's happening. He shoots through the wall and then you've got the, the slow motion yeah. um, of, the, of the bullets, clips Morpheus in the calf, and then cut back to Neo and he says, he's not gonna make it. 
Neo, tied to the helicopter, jumps out um, to catch Morpheus, who's jumped out the building. And here, the two of them hang at the, at the bottom of the, the helicopter as Trinity flies the helicopter away. Now, that in itself would be enough to end the yeah. scene right there. That would be one of the monumental scenes in all of action. Exactly. But little does the audience know that that's actually the beginning. And the greatness of the scene is only just, is, is about to come. They fly through the city and that's where you get the, that's the, probably the biggest shot of Sydney. I love those we, wide mm, shots of the yeah. buildings and you, you can see the bodies going through. Yeah. That's for, a great stunt, right? Hanging off a And for us who live in Sydney, you can actually oh, pick out the buildings I, and stuff like I that. I worked with the wire people a really, few years uh, later. On, uh, I, they came in to do some double the fist wires yeah. for us and they'd just been the wire people on, on the Matrix. Wow. It was awesome. They just yeah. had tons of great stories. I mean, it's so but sophisticated, the wire work. on Because the, the, the wire, well, when you do wire work, they, they have to work out your center of gravity to hang you and then... I was lucky my center of gravity worked out well. And yeah. they, were, they were like, oh, you got a good one. And they were just rating the characters on set <laughs> of The Matrix who had the best center of gravity and who knew how to control their wires the best. Yeah, I great. think Lawrence did all right. Really? Yeah. As oh, they're flying along. That surprises um, me. The <laughs> <pushed> <laughs> yeah, I, know. I think it surprised a lot of them. The Wachowskis pushed everything to the edge. So they shot the oil line and the helicopter starts to go down to crash. And it's also... I don't know, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's the first depiction, but Trinity taking control of the scene is so massively important. Yep. And when she takes the gun and shoots the line that's connecting Morpheus and Neo. Mm. And what, no, but then she also swings out of the helicopter. She swings out of the helicopter. Mm. The helicopter crashes into the building, and this is how the whole thing was marketed. The windows of the building begin to morph. Now, at this stage of the Matrix, we're already coded into the way the world works. The world can be morphed and changed. And then the building explodes with Trinity flying out of the building with, you know, thousands and thousands of shards of glass exploding behind her. Well, and then what Neo gets pulled to the edge and, um, you know, the guy, and then they cut to Tank with a headset yeah. and he goes, He's the one. Yeah, no, you no, know, it's the, Morpheus goes, he is, yeah. Morpheus looks down at Neo oh, and he goes, he's the, one. he's the one. And that moment, whenever I see it, I get like like shivers because that question about easy the one, it sounds trite, but the answer to that question has been driving the entire movie. And it's only at that point that Morpheus himself yeah. believes that he's, he's been saying it to the Oracle, he's been saying it to everybody. <laughs> well, but in a I, way, it was kind of to bolster the confidence, right? And he wanted to self, to believe himself. I love when, because Morpheus is such an idiot, right? I love when Neo says to Morpheus, but the Oracle said I was not the one. And Morpheus says, she told you exactly what you <laughs> needed to hear. <laughs> like Morpheus is like, mm. um, one of the things that's interesting about the whole franchise is Morpheus ultimately is misguided, right? Yeah. He, he compromises many people through his zealotry, you know, which yeah. is a really... Um, he's, that's, a, he's a bit of a scarecrow, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just about Lawrence Fishburne really quickly, this is more like, I mean, but Lawrence Fishburne's character changes. I, th I think it was the least formed character that the Wachowskis had in moving into the sequels. I uh, want to say that another reference, you know, we talked about the Canvas reference. Mm. Kansas reference, you're not in Kansas anymore, which was the inception of Neo going into the Matrix, right? Because the Wachowskis, one of their biggest touchstones was the Wizard of Oz. And that's why it's so interesting that you led with us for the idea of, like, the Wizard of Oz as a kind of, you know, gender, sexual, trans transgressive text. Because it was for the Wachowskis, that's documented. Mm. Um, the other great moment is when Neo's running through the streets shortly after this where he's got to get an exit, and he grabs the guy's phone, and he goes, Wizard, I need an exit. 
and he's like speaking to the Wizard of yeah, Oz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. all these little references Lovely. to like what Neo's going through is part of Neo's inner fantasy world. You know, it's obviously we wouldn't say fantasy, we'd say simulated, but there's that real exchange with the fantasy world of the Wizard of Oz. Mm. That as a mise-en-scene in itself is one of the greatest mm. captures and innovation, I think, in action in action sequencing yeah. ever no, in film. It was also the first time where, uh, as a lefty liberal type, you go, oh, you're okay. To, it's okay to like this one. Like <laughs> the violence, it's not. It's not you know yeah. right wing propaganda shooting everything up. This one is like, oh no, these are, these aren't even real humans. These are actually yeah. bad. It's like it's it was okay to be down with the violence. Yeah. I remember. But then it was no, up no, by but, the right, right. But there's an in, issue in with it though because ways. don't forget, like and Bruce, you and I discussed this a lot when the Matrix came out. Like philosophically, when Neo's blowing everyone up in the law firm, right? Mm. That's killing people. Those yeah, people in, are real in the, people. In the robot world. Because they're in the, ba- uh, yeah, okay. the battery people. So Sorry, he's, the battery people. So Trinity and Neo, they're mass murderers. Just want to yeah. put it out there. Yeah. No, no, oh, I mean, okay. so, but the, <laughs> we haven't Sorry, had a I chance. just got schooled. You know, we haven't had a chance to talk about the politics of this movie, which is one of the most interesting things. We'll go on Because it, it was really, it was claimed by the right, it was claimed by the left, it was claimed by the uber capitalists, it was claimed by the socialists, mm. that ultimately what Neo was showing us was the remaking of capitalism into a socialist world, that kind of thing. That subtext of the movie, which caught on globally, mm. certainly it was huge in America, Australia, the UK, the movie spoke allegorically to almost everyone on the political <laughs> spectrum, from the extreme right, mm. as you say, Craig, the red pill people, mm. to the extreme left, anarchism. Like, the, we will be an anarchist the, group. The black pill people. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, okay. you're, you're up racist. on all the pill stuff, okay? <laughs> Bringing in race to the manosphere. <laughs> Um, and we, have, we haven't even talked about things like race in the film, right? Uh, social class. The, Is the there film, much race it, reading in the film? Oh, huge, yes? right? Okay. Massive. So, look, um, check out a book called Enter the Matrix, I think it's called. Uh, I'd say by 2003, there were at least four academic books on the Matrix. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean um, like um, single-authored books on the Matrix. I'm talking edited volumes where scholars got together to wrestle with the Matrix. Well, that's one of yours. That yours I'm in one, one of, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd never seen that about... I still haven't seen that about any film in history. There mm. isn't... It doesn't exist that way. You know, there, there aren't that many books on Star Wars in that sense, right? This was the moment of people going, this is a great intellectual object. Let's, let's really work with it. I wonder if something like Barbie might attract similar attention. I don't know. Mm. But that would be an interesting you know, point, a film that's aesthetically very interesting, politically very interesting, so on. Yeah. But The Matrix was doing it all. Well, look, if you want any more information about The Matrix, check out Bruce's book. But yeah. also contact us on our Instagram, yeah. and Bruce will reach out and send you all the stuff. If you want to know a reading or where to look, Bruce has got all Definitely. the info on or The just Matrix. Just let me know what you think. I'd um, also love to hear from some of our listeners because a lot of the people a lot of people now have got a more contemporary lens over the matrix. Yeah. Our lens of the matrix is of of the time yeah, and absolutely. also our background in terms of action film philosophy. Like I'm talking about William Gibson, which I was reading back what like 1988, 1989 kind of thing. So that goes back a long way. A lot of that codes the way I view The Matrix. So I'd be really interested to hear how people view The Matrix now. All right, well, hit us up. Let us know what you think of The Matrix, if you love it or you hate it. Maybe you hate it. (laughs) Think anyone hates The Matrix? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay, a couple of reviews I read. um, They were going, uh, well, first of all, there are quite a few people who say that Keanu Reeves' range 
is just why would you pick the person in the first? That's I think that's a ridiculous comment yeah, because it's silly. It's just, um, it actually works for the it film. Shows you the narrowness of our. Um, the uh, other thing is people. Uh, there, there are a couple of people who say it's embarrassing to see the Wachowskis grapple with complex ideas when they're not up to the challenge. Wow, um, that which really is amazing. Me. When you read that twenty years later, I mean, you know, it's, that's really, a little bit embarrassing. I hate that kind of. I don't know. In Australia, we call that a kind of tall poppy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like, you know, stay in your place. You're not qualified to do this. Leave this to the, the people like me. I hate that that sentiment. Which film do you like better out of the two? Matrix. Matrix. I'm going Wizard. Ah, uh, interesting. Serious? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's something so deep inside me from yeah. my childhood with that film. I mean, I've got that with Wizard, but The Matrix became like something so wrapped up in my life as well. Yeah. You know, honors, PhD, and then post. You know, without The Matrix, I, you know, the very first thing I ever published was a journal article, not a journal, a, a book chapter, co-authored with a guy for that volume on The Matrix. Mm. And I still have vivid memories of sending their first draft to the editors, and they FedExed it back to me and said, uh, this is astonishingly poor. <laughs> I just, no, I mean, it's such a formative moment in my life. I still have it at home. What, your Stop letter them. that says you No, you no, suck. no, the, 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 the markup. The guy's oh, marked wow. up, and there isn't a line without mm. pencil marks on it and at the bottom and it they is, like typed up a like it was like a Jack Torrance and they go you shit you shit you shit <laughs> for the entire page I, I, I was so um, you know you got to pick devastated. yourself up I was yeah. devastated it was a very hard thing to read because wow. I was a junior a very junior person um, but I fought to stay in that book and if I you know, that led to other things um, and now you know that's a long way in the past. Well, there you go. I, I just want to say yeah. something really quickly. So one of my fondest memories of the Matrix is I used to live in a uh, in in a share house uh, in a street called Pine Street in Newtown with a couple of friends of Bruce and I, James Taylor and 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 Will Payton. Mm. And on a Sunday afternoon, we were all hanging out together, having a few drinks, and we put the Matrix on on the TV yeah. in the background, and we put Rage Against the. So for our viewers at home, uh, listeners at home, obviously Rage Against the Machine is the <laughs> it backs up a lot of the, uh-huh. the 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 soundtrack, and it's the final. I mean, um, we should also say Rage Against the Machine is an Uber left group, right? Yeah. So Wake like Up is the final yeah. track of the Matrix. So what we did was we put um, the Morpheus Neo. Um, fight sequence, the, scene. The, the training the sequence scene. on mm. the screen, mm. and we played Rage Against the Machine, and then we all took our shirts off, okay. and we we tried to learn all the moves over about ninety minutes yeah. in, while drinking while drinking glasses yeah. of wine. It's uh, one of the best afternoons of my life. <laughs> I mean, not for your downstairs neighbours, but yeah, sure. And you know what? I also remember because I was working on this stuff. I would like go over and we'd put stuff on, and all of us would be sitting there, and I'd go. Oh, look at the deep background of the shot. Look at that. You can see the guy tracking along the top of the ceiling and it'd be like real nerdy stuff because my head was so in it for so long. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those are very pleasant times. Well, there you go. That is our final official episode for this season of 12. We, uh, the Matrix winning that, that one. Uh, we're going to stay on, so stick with us, because there are a few more episodes before the end of the year. We're going to do uh, two best-ofs of our discussions about Western Sydney, which is a, sort of a special thing put together yeah. because of all the people. And who... people seem to really like it. Yeah, and and I but, well, I people love from that. Western Sydney, and I know that sometimes they'll see the name of the films and they go, well, I haven't seen them, and they won't listen. But what we want to do is just connect with you about our Western Sydney experiences. Mm. So we're going to put those two out. The other one, the last one we'll do this year is a Christmas special. Yes, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to this Christmas we're special. We're currently so slated. I, I think we can reveal now yeah, what's go, go, currently go. 
correctly slated. It's a wonderful life versus National Lampoon's A Christmas Vacation. Yeah. I've so, seen both those movies. Oh, double figures. What, so they will be doing that. Episode. But our next episode to come out, which is only a week away, it is a very special. <laughs> you two are looking at me with such like, what is it? Okay, I've been, here it is. Every time we do one of these films, one of you goes, this is one of my favorite films. Mm. So what I want to do is put you to the challenge. We're going to have a ranking episode. We're going to have a draft where you two are going to be like draft bosses. And there's a there's a format for this. It's I a, love this, Craig. Yeah, and we're going to work with the the 30 films. So Because we've done 12 times 2, 24 plus 6 special, uh, six popped up. Are so we drafting what we we've done? We are drafting the 30 we've done into our top 10. No. I'm not going to draft. I'm going to be the boss. Gonna, I'm uh, going to be the... So you facilitating I'm the facilitating. Draft. And... Hershel and I have to pick our top 10 off the 30. You guys have to pick your top 10. And what happens is it'll be done by drafting. So one of you will be picking first, third, fifth. And someone will be picking oh, like excellent. second, fourth, sixth, <laughs> eighth, and ninth. So we've got like a yeah, draft yeah. So it'll be a draft. It'll be a serpentine-style draft where we move through there. And then it starts at the back end and it moves yeah. closer. So what it is, is as it gets closer to the, the bottom... You guys, you'll be allowed to have one wild card where you're allowed to interject, <laughs> like an objection. Now, I assume that you're going to have to also advocate for your... For your you oh, yes. Go, oh, Once you announce it, it you yeah, have to yeah. explain it, and then, yeah. you know, people can interject and disagree. But what we're going to end up with is our official, out of the ones we've done so far, what are the best ones? That from first I to ten. I love that. So that's a great I'm idea. just going to quickly remind and you of some of the... everyone's summer viewing. Well, well yeah, go with the top ten that we've yeah. produced, right? So I'll, I'll have all the rules officially for you during the week. I'll send great, them out. Great. We'll meet next week. We'll go through that. Some of the films that will be up for the top ten include Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Back to the Future, American Movie, Power of the Dog, Wicker Man, Borat, Crocodile Dundee... And then all the ones from our first season, I'm trying to remember what some of them are. Thin Blue Line. Thin Blue Line. Texas Chainsaw, Parasite, Shining, It, Batman, Dark Knight, Green Book. You know, it's really... <laughs> the Fly. You know, it's rewarding just as you say all that. Why, we did all of this We have done years? all of this. Yeah, and we can talk about yeah. how we enjoyed talking about them and some of our memories. Yeah. So it's probably going to be a longer a, episode than uh, normal. It's been a great uh, experience, great ride. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal the format of one of my favorite podcasts called Screen Drafts, where they do great. this there in an L.A based group and they love to go through and they have filmmakers on and they just pick things like 1950s musicals or sci-fi films or the films of John Carpenter and they'll just go through and they'll rank amongst each yeah. other and it's very exciting yeah, and great. it'll be a very it's almost like we're like drafting who's going to get first pick who's going to win first <laughs> who yeah, yeah, yeah. goes first and we'll, we'll, I'll do trivia with you both to make you find out who's going to get the order Okay. and then once we've locked in the order it becomes the responsibility oh, yeah, yeah. and it'll be like you two you're not allowed to say it but you'll obviously be saying I hope that this one comes number <laughs> one because if we get down and your favorite thing isn't there and there's only yeah, one slot left you have to choose whether you're number two you're going to put it in or if your your partner's going to like it's if like the, it's like the biggest like nba draft it is a right? huge and exciting <laughs> event so we're going to do a big draft for our, our next episode uh, it's going to draft the films we've done so far so we'll officially know what is your favorite film oh uh, that's excellent i'm excited that can I? I want to say just uh, from all of us, but you know, I, obviously a huge thank you to people. I've had so many people like write to me and go, they love season two. Mm -hmm. That they've just been having so much fun with these episodes, and right. it's been a real pleasure this season. I think I've really enjoyed it. Well, if you love it, please don't forget to rate and review us on wherever you listen and give us five stars because that'll help the machines aggregate them, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that Dorothy can find them. We're all on Instagram at Film versus Film Podcast. Check us out. Say hi to us anytime we would love that thank you
you all for listening. That's the end of our second season. We will see you next week for our big top 10 draft. I'm Craig Anderson. I'm Herschel Isaacs. I'm Bruce Isaacs. <laughs> Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.